We've been invited to adore our God. Now let us do it by looking at His Word. Please turn with me to John chapter 12, and we'll be studying today verses 37 to 43. John 12, verses 37 to 43. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a Bible provided in the seat back in front of you, and you'll find the text today on page 899. And feel free to keep that copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to be able to read it and find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. John 12 Verses 37 to 43. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It was back in 1985 that Chris Van Alsberg Uh, authored what would be one of the most uh, popular uh, Christmas stories of all time. The next year, it would go on to win a Caldecott Award, which if you've ever been to the library with your children, it's the little gold seal on the cover of some books that typically represents uh, excellence in pictorial representations for children. It's normally not the book with the best plot, per se, but the one that told the best story with pictures. And so this one would become a staple, even becoming a major motion picture ten years later, and it's none other than the Polar Express. Now, the interesting thing about the Caldecott Award is that it is solely based on pictorial representation, not plot or purpose. I think that's a very important distinction to make. Because if you've ever seen the book, or even the movie, it's beautifully illustrated. But I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It's a little pointless. I mean, the theme is good. It sounds good. It's syrupy and sweet. Believe. Believe. It almost sounds Christian, doesn't it? Just believe. Believe. And the crazy thing is, don't want to do any spoilers for children under the age of eight, but what it's calling on them to believe in may not be real. May not be. Your parents can explain that. Like, why spend an entire book calling on people to believe in something that you will eventually have to tell them at, I don't know, whatever age you decide to do so? It's not actually true. And so the call to believe actually rings hollow. I see it all through the Christmas season. Believe, believe, believe. And I ask, believe in what? Why? Believe for, believe for what? To what end are we to believe? And what are we believing in? Is it the spirit of Christmas? Are we believing in generosity? Are we believing in the fundamental goodness of humanity? Are we believing in God generally? I love that there's a call to believe, but we need to get clear on what it is we are to be believing in. And so it just kind of seems trite. It seems a little overworn. It seems a little repetitive, redundant. And so also, 
could the regular and consistent calls throughout the book of John seem as well? It seems like every sermon that we preach here, at least for the last six months, has been, believe! Now there's an object, it's believe in Jesus. But it would be tempting for us to start thinking as a congregation like, all right, I think we need to be moving on to different territory. I think that, that we've got it. We do, by now, believe in Jesus. We believe that He is the Son of God. I, I wasn't really doubting that six months ago, but I'm for sure not doubting it now. Next book, please. And yet it's the inspired Word of God, and it keeps calling us to believe. Do you wonder why? Like, couldn't John have made this thing a lot shorter? Couldn't he have just said, Jesus did a lot of really cool stuff that proved he was God, therefore you should believe. Just trust me on this one. But he doesn't. He keeps calling for it over and over and over again because he presumes something. That there are some who had not yet believed. Where we are in John so far, Jesus has done Six stupendous miracles. I mean, mind-blowing. And the verses that we've read are like the conclusion of what's happened with these six. And what we just read was this. He's been calling on them to believe, and it says, and they still did not believe. The problem is ongoing unbelief. It's still there. And so John's going to call for it again, but this time, instead of just saying, believe, he's going to take things a little differently. He's actually going to show you how terrible unbelief actually is. All the other times he's been focusing on Jesus and the call for you to believe, but now he's going to show you what unbelief actually looks like. We could call this passage an anatomy of unbelief. An anatomy of unbelief. An anatomy is conducted when something is cut open and dissected and you see it for what it really is. What is going to happen here is unbelief will be laid out on the table, it will be cut wide open, and you're going to see three disturbing aspects of unbelief that will move you to one of two things. To belief if you have not done so already. Or to gratitude if you have. But I want you to note John's sober assessment of unbelief in its three forms. The first form of unbelief that's tackled here, we could call those who will not believe. It's in verses 37 and 38. Those who will not believe. You see it there in the text, verse 37. He had done so many signs before them, and they still did not believe in him. Now, what are signs? What do we mean by signs? Let's just review something real quick. Uh, Signs aren't like hints. Signs are not implications. Signs were verifiable displays of deity. They were authentications, if you will. They, they were things that made something official. Like you, you've always heard the story and somebody in a debate with an atheist, well, if God were really, well, were, were really real, He would prove it. Uh, have Him strike this tree with lightning. What we have here is multiple lightning strikes upon trees. I mean, sign after sign after sign that is just hands down like, oh yeah, He is who He said He is. Oh yeah, this is amazing. Oh yeah, this really is the Son of God. They've got proof. They've got public displays, and yet they still don't believe. They refuse to do it. It says that they still do not believe in Him. In the original language, it's an imperfect verb. They were not believing in Him. They just kept on and on and on refusing to believe. (laughs) And it just kind of makes you wonder, like, what is their problem? Why, why don't they do it? Well, in the text, all it says is this, they didn't want to. 
They didn't want to. My dad, he's not a philosopher by any means. He's a construction worker. He's an old soul. He says wise things. And I remember him telling me in college one time, I mean, I think somebody could write a book on this. He said, son, people are going to do what they want to do. (laughs) Why don't they believe? They don't want to. Why don't they want to believe? There's an interesting explanation. Look at your Bible. It says in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, this is weird. Their unbelief in some sense was prefigured or predicted by Isaiah. And we have a copy of what Isaiah said there. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Does that sound familiar? We just read it a few minutes ago. Isaiah 53, verse 1 in our Bibles. It's actually saying, like Isaiah is saying, like he says it like right in the middle of this prophecy about the suffering servant, about God's coming hero and Savior. He's saying, this is shocking. I don't know if anybody's actually going to believe in this. We just kind of like read right over it. And why is that? I don't know, friends. Were you actually like listening I mean, what Isaiah is predicting about this coming hero of God, about this coming Christ, is pretty disturbing. It's not what you would normally want from a divine hero. I mean, I just, you know, jotted down a few notes from the passage. We don't need to read the whole thing again. But basically, I just want you to get the God that was being presented to them, the hero that was being presented to them, isn't all that appetizing to the unenlightened mind. It's rather gross. It's rather disgusting. Frankly, it's a little repulsive. Isaiah 53 speaks of God's servant, the Savior figure, this divine representative, this divine agent, as being highly exalted and lifted up. And you're like, yes, that's the kind of hero that I want. And then it tells you how he's going to be exalted and lifted up. 52.14, as one marred beyond human semblance. That's a tough pitch. You know, normally for your political leader, you want somebody that's got some charisma, some appearance, looks a certain way. This guy's going to be so mangled that people won't even recognize him as human. That's not good. <laughs> he goes on to say, after he says, who's going to believe this? that this servant, this agent, this representative would have no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Man, tough sell. But it keeps going. like It's relentless. Isaiah thinks it's shocking that anybody would ever believe in this Messiah because he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one who would be discarded and disrespected. I can't imagine anybody uh, pitching a life improvement seminar taught by someone who was a reject of everyone. Hey friends, I'm a loser in the world's eyes, but I know the secret to greatness. Follow me. And yet that's what's being pitched. Isaiah knew that most would not believe and embrace a leader, a savior, who is stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This doesn't sound like a good sell. After all, what what kind of divine hero gets pierced, crushed, punished, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, buried, crushed, and grieved? And so Isaiah says, who has believed the report heard from us? Implied answer, nobody. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's an interesting question. We don't talk about that very much. The arm of the Lord, what's he talking about? I didn't know God had arms. Well, that is an anthropomorphism. It's ascribing human characteristics to God. It's not talking about God having a literal arm. The arm stood for one's power or might. We still do it today. Somebody rolls up their sleeves, they take a picture, and they flex their muscles, and they're trying to like show you that they've got power, they've got strength. To whom would the power and the strength and the might of God be revealed in this way? Implied answer, Nobody. Isaiah saw it coming hundreds of years before it happened. Like, this is a hard sell. 
I don't know that anybody's going to believe in this. And so, John is saying here, oh, it's just like Isaiah called it. They will not, in their natural state, be drawn to a Savior like this. It's repulsive, it's disgusting, it's offensive. Who wants a hero like this? They will not. They will not. They don't want it. Why did they not believe? Because, as a man, he was simply not the stuff messiahs are made of. He was not the kind of messiah they wanted. It reminds me of like a, a baby refusing to eat their vegetables. It's a, it's a fun time in a parent's life. Uh, when you go from the milk stage to the solid food stage, and you think, there's this little child, pliable, obedient. <laughs> and you start trying the different little jars of baby food, and uh, the plums, man, they go right down. You know, sweet potatoes. And then I don't even know why parents do this. It's just torture. Asparagus. The kid learns, isn't this crazy? Like they, there's no like powers of rationale. There's just, but they, they learn to purse their lips and their little gums so tightly that you can't even wedge the soft spoon in there. They don't like it. They just don't like it. They're wired that way. They're doing what they want to do. That's the children of Israel. Their little gums pursed tightly, God trying to feed them exactly what they need. And they're like, this is gross. I don't like it. And it exposes a principle difference that I don't think we typically consider. We normally assume that we have a pretty good palate. We normally assume that we know good food. That we are as connoisseurs neutral to that which would be fed to us. And yet, apart from God's grace, you have no taste, no appetite for what the Savior is serving you. You don't want it. Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Like, they can't see that it's beautiful. Could you imagine showing up at the beach this evening with a blind friend and saying, check out that sunset. Try to describe it to him. Go for it. I want you to tell me how far you get. They don't have the capacity Paul actually says that the message that he preached is for some an aroma of life and for others the stench of death. You ever had one of those rodents? It's in Florida, we can say this. Those palm rats die in a wall? Like, what happened? Do you understand that the Savior that we've been singing about to some people is like a dead rat in a wall? Are you catching that? They don't mind, by the way, let's just be really honest. They don't mind little Jesus, meek and mild, in a manger. That's pretty cute. But a grown man Jesus, bleeding, hanging, dying on a cross, satisfying the wrath of God for sin, pursed lips, disgusted face. They will not. They don't want it. So why is it that they, they don't want to believe? Because, frankly... They don't like the kind of Jesus that's being presented to them. Did you recognize, as we've been studying this book together, that they actually like it when Jesus is giving them food? They like it when he's healing people. But here it is, at the end of his time, with them publicly, and all of a sudden they don't like him. And you're like, well, what in the world brought this on? And let me tell you what brought it on. He made it crystal clear that he was going to die. That was the last thing that we studied together. Remember he said he was going to be glorified? How was he going to be glorified? By being lifted up on a cross and dying. I mean, literally, just two days before this, they are hailing him as the king. There are thousands of people out there saying, Yay, Jesus, come take over Rome. And here we are two days later. The only thing that's changed is the fact that he said, Oh, by the way, I'm going to be glorified in the same way a seed in the ground is glorified by dying and then that producing life. 
Oh, by the way, I'm going to be glorified in the same way that serpent on a pole back in the book of Numbers was glorified by being killed and lifted up on a cross. And they're like, nope, I'm out. That is not the kind of Savior that I want. I will not believe in this. I will not count on this. Friends, the the point is that apart from God's gracious work in us, we are not morally neutral. We are disinclined to that which He offers. We will not. It is our twisted wills away from God. And I think the reason why is because, just humanly speaking, to see a Savior who has to, to die and suffer in this way implies that we're pretty messed up. We're pretty messed up. I mean, this whole crucifixion thing, God's wrath thing, being satisfied, uh, eternal hell, that flies in the face of, I'm not that bad. If you think, I'm not that bad, all you need is just a few simple acts of penance and you can clean yourself up. Do do we not say it this way? Do you not hear this? Look, I've, I've made a few mistakes. It was just a white lie. Yeah, I messed up. It's just a guilty pleasure. Nothing that a little year-end giving won't fix. (laughs) Nothing that uh, going to church a little bit won't clean up. Nothing that a random random act of kindness would not remedy. We just think like, you know what, we did some bad things, we could do some good things, we can make it up. And then the Bible says, well, the only way actually that you'll ever be right with God is through nothing that you would do, but only through this one from God coming to satisfy His eternal wrath. In a cross. I love the old hymn. We, don't, we sing it at um, Easter. Mark, we should probably start singing it at Christmas, but everybody would be weirded out by it. It's called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. It's based on Isaiah 53. Listen to these lines. This is helpful. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. What's it talking about? The cross. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. My friends, looking at a crucified Savior helps us realize that We're not as great as we thought we were. And people don't like that. They don't like it. They don't want it. This also doesn't fit our palate and our American triumphalism. We want heroes. We want victors. And yet here's a God who's died. And yet God knew. God knew that this would offend people. And this is the very way that He would receive glory. Do you remember? He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's always been God's plan to to turn the wisdom of the world on its head, to work in countercultural ways. And so the truth is that there are some who do not believe simply because they do not want to. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are stuck following the prince of the power of the air. Like, we are messed up. And so we don't have that appetite. What's especially interesting about this is that those with the most religious heritage in this text, those who have the, the best and brightest religious pedigree, the Jewish people, they're the ones most inclined to say, I don't like that kind of Messiah. I get it. I see it on your face. Don't worry. Oh, thanks, Justin. A really encouraging Christmas message uh, one week out. Um, I'm just ready to go take the world for Jesus now. Um, If this is true, since this is true, the opposite is also true. If, if If you were born with this disgust, for a crucified Messiah who would be risen again from the dead. The fact that you delight in it now shows that God has done something supernatural in you. I think sometimes we think, oh, well, why doesn't everybody believe? 
as if it was just like somebody learning to tie their shoes. It doesn't work that way. God has given life. And friend, I want you to be encouraged because some of you are in here, self-included, we know how this goes. Like we struggle with sin, we're not everything we want to be, we're not living up to our expectations. Here we are, we're, we're almost at New Year's in and we're reflecting on all the failed resolutions from times past and, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't even know if I really am uh, a child of God. And let me give you the greatest indicator that you're a child of God. It is that you actually delight in His crucified Son. It's impossible. It's impossible apart from His divine intervention. Life has been given to you. Friends, rejoice in that. There are many who will not because they don't want to. But you want to. Why? Because God has given you a will. I love, I love that reminder in Ephesians 2, 9 that you know, salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. It's the gift of God. Lest anyone should boast. You just don't get any credit. The whole package is just a gift from God. Even in Philippians 1.27, he talks about uh, the gift of faith. He says, suffering is a gift and faith is a gift. God has just given you good gifts. You know what, friends? <laughs> we should thank God for this gift. Not just of the gift of Jesus, but listen to this. The gift of being able to respond to Jesus in the first place. The, the gift of, of belief. So what you see here is the ongoing unbelief. It's terrible. Because some may simply will not believe. But there's another group. I'm sorry, friends. It's going to get worse. There's another group here. And it's not just those who will not believe, but there's a group of people who cannot believe. There's those who will not believe, and there are those who cannot believe. You're like, ah, no, I don't think there's anybody that cannot believe. Well, I, I think you need to read the Bible. Look at verse 39. It says, Therefore, they could not believe. <laughs> All right, wrestle through that one. Clearly, within this group of people who would not believe, there was a group of people also who could not believe. You're like, Justin, I'm not getting it. Well, listen to his explanation. Again, Isaiah said. He's quoting Isaiah 6 here. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Um, that's disturbing. So, Justin, are you meaning to telling me to tell me that that God has blinded some people's eyes and hardened their hearts? so that they would not be able to see and understand with their heart, nor turn to Him and be healed and be saved. Is that, is that what the text is saying? Yeah, it is. But you need to follow the logic. First, we've seen, let's keep this in mind, this is disturbing, but I want to walk us through it. Step one, we've noted that the Jews' rejection of Jesus happened despite his abundant and miraculous signs. These aren't some, you know, Johnny-come-lately's never heard the gospel. These are people who saw multiple evidences of Jesus' glory and greatness, and they turned it down over and over and over again. That's the context leading up to this. Second, he traced that back to the predicted response to the Messiah in Isaiah 53. I mean, generationally, this has been a problem for the children of Israel. I, I just don't think that you get it. I don't think I get it very much either. Old covenant relationship with God was the right rules with none of the ability. Like God told them all the right stuff to do, but he would say over and over again, but you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. So he promised a new covenant in which he would give them a new heart. These are, these are old covenant saints here. And so God has said, hey, look, habitually, you guys, I've shown you signs and you've resisted. And God knew that. He knew that he had not yet given them the capacity to believe. And so third, he shows that this case of ongoing unbelief did not oppose God's plan, but it accords with it because there comes a point in time, dear friends, where God stops wooing people and just lets them have what they really want, thereby hardening their heart. 
Isn't that crazy? Did you know that the most devastating form of judgment that God ever exercises on an individual, please hear me, is giving them what they want? Have you read Romans 1 lately? It talks about a group of people who were not acknowledging God for who He was. They were not thanking Him. And what does God do in response? He expresses His wrath by giving them over to their desires, letting them have what they really want. He stops dealing with them. And here the same is true. The Israelites at, at one point would get to the point that Isaiah would actually be told ahead of time, hey, here's the heads up. I've already hardened their hearts. I've already blinded their eyes. Guess what? Nobody's going to respond to your message, but preach it anyway. God does that. Do you know that in 1 Kings 22, He actually sent a deceptive prophet to Ahab? Or have you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at some point? It talks about during the tribulational period that God would actually send a spirit of deception so that certain people could not believe. I think sometimes, friends, like we have our view of what we want God to be, and then the Bible's like blowing that up. Because it actually says that there are certain times and certain places and certain circumstances where God will actually prevent it so that people cannot come to Him. The the most classic illustration of this is is Pharaoh, right? Do you remember this story? Everybody remember Pharaoh? Well, it's in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, that we first hear this term. God determined to harden Pharaoh's heart. You're like, that ain't fair. That ain't fair. But then you hear this in chapter 8, verse 15 and verse 32, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, who did it? Did God do it or did Pharaoh do it? Well, so far, both passages say both. But then you start reading Exodus 9, 12 and 10, 20 and verse 27. You know what it says there? God hardened his heart. Like, how do you explain that, friends? I don't know. (laughs) All I know is Pharaoh had the opportunity and he did not respond. And in some sense, God was also cementing the decision saying, nope, you're done You're not going to respond. My glory will be displayed in wrath, not in rescue to you. That's why Paul says in Romans 9, verses 14 to 18, just listen listen to the apostle. What shall we say then? Is this injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Man, this is tough. It reminds me of the old adage that the same sun that hardens the wax melts the clay. Isn't it weird how like this, this, this same sun can cause such disparate responses in different things? Some have explained this hardening here. The old Puritans, they, they say things well. Sometimes they say things in a confusing way. Sometimes they say things well. <laughs> this is helpful. We need to understand that what's going, here, going on here is a judicial sentence. He hardened their heart. Hardened, by the way, is an interesting Greek word. It's the one that's often used to, for the developing or formation of a callus. You ever had one of those? How do calluses work? I don't need a medical explanation, but you know the general principle. Something rubs the same spot over and over and over and over again, and the body just resists it. It hardens to it. The hardening of the heart here is similar to the developing of a callus. It gets rubbed, poked, prodded in the same way over and over again. Believe, 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 believe. And guess what? The soul hardens to it. And thus is portrayed as, as God hardening the heart, but in a sense, the person has hardened their heart. One Puritan put it this way, The man who deliberately shuts his eyes against the light of truth shall gradually lose the power of seeing. Listen to that. The man who deliberately shuts his eyes against the light of truth shall gradually, gradually lose the power of seeing. You know that, that happens, right? 
Another one wrote it this way, in which it combined the stubborn resistance and the ultimate judicial sentencing by saying this, This is the law of moral hardening. The day of grace may terminate before the day of life. Think about that. The day of grace may terminate before the day of life. God gave them what they absolutely needed and did not want. And in that way, he blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts. Friends, I want to be clear here. While God elects by his grace, the Bible never invalidates human choice. That's why Jesus, knowing that Israel would reject him, still invites them. He still asks them to choose Yet on the side of human responsibility, there's this terrifying principle that you can reject the light one too many times and you can turn away the Savior to such a degree that He does not return again. And this is scary stuff, friends. God is not always available to those who do not believe in Him. At times, He can express judgment by preventing the hard-hearted from ever coming to Him. And he will not ultimately be rejected. Rather, their full and final rejection revealed his rejection of them. And God's greatest act of judgment is when he finally gives the sinful heart what it thinks it wants. So Justin, how do I know if it's too late? How do I know if um, I'm past the point, no return? Well, the truth is that you wouldn't care to be asking that question if that were the case. But can I still not remove the total edge from this thing? You need to be really scared. And I, I don't try to scare often, but I'm only trying to scare here on the basis of this text. You need to get really scared if it's getting easier and easier and easier for you to not believe. It could be the forming of the callous. Maybe one year ago, it was just really hard. It was something you're wrestling with. And then six months ago, it was like, oh, this is bothersome. I know that I should like, place my faith in Christ at some time. And maybe here today, you're like, okay, I'm so tired of hearing this guy say believe. I know that I need to do it at some point. I would be disturbed by that trajectory. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like the callousing of a heart. And there will come a time where God says, I am done. This is over. Some will not believe. Some cannot believe. But can I give you the positive side of this? The God who can harden the heart is the same God who makes hard hearts soft. Some of you are praying and pursuing loved ones who have yet to trust in Jesus, and you're thinking, you don't know this person. They just seem so far. They're so cold. They're so hard. Friends, Proverbs says it this way, the king's heart is in the hand of a Lord. And like a river, he turns it whithersoever he will. How the rivers get like they were? How did they end up that direction? Why do they flow this way and not that way? God did that. Just like the heart of your loved one. Just like the heart of your friend, your family member, your neighbor. God's greater than our hearts. He can harden them and He can soften them. If you want to think more about this, I can't make this its own subject. But I would encourage you to buy yourself a Christmas present. And it would be J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you've never read it, you need to read it. If you don't have the six bucks to buy it, I will give it to you. You need to read that book. Why? Because so many times we think that God's sovereignty is the great enemy of our evangelism. Friend, it's, it's the great enabler of it. How in the world are we going to see life Amid death, unless sovereign God does it. Sure, he could shut off the heart, but he's the only one that could get it open in the first place. Belief is t- unbelief is terrible. Some, some will not believe, some cannot believe. 
And then this last aspect of unbelief is fascinating. Some might not believe. Some might not believe. Notice how John finishes this thing. It's very, very interesting. Verse 42. Nevertheless, despite this widespread unbelief of those who will not and those who cannot, it says that nevertheless, many even of the authorities, the rulers, notice this, believed in Him. Now, pause. Stop for a second. You're like, yes! <laughs> woo all right, so not everybody was turning him away. There at least were a few people, and it implies that it was actually a lot of them. A, a lot of the rulers, even the rulers, it says, which implies that there were a lot of their followers that were doing this as well. You're like, all right, score one, Team Jesus. This thing's not a total loss. Uh, we're rejoicing. We're celebrating. Praise the Lord for the belief. And then, I'm, I'm not trying to read anything into this, but let me just do a thought experiment with you. Um, let's say that we ended it at, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, period. Let's do a little uh, check real quick. How would you feel about that? I think we'd be celebrating. But here's the crazy thing. And this is, it's, it's really, like, it's just puzzled me all week. There's not a period there. There's a comma. So John's going to provide a little further comment, and, and this is what, as we read these few, these few words, I want you to assess in your own heart, how does it make you feel about this belief? Like, you, you were all like, yay, Jesus. But how do you feel after you read the rest of the inspired account? Many believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. All right, Paul's there. Let's pretend that's a period. You're like, okay, well, that's not ideal. I mean, it's not good that they were scared of being excommunicated from the synagogue. And let's be honest, friends, it was a tough spot to be in. The synagogue was the center of the religious community. This is where all their business contacts would have come from. This is where all their family relationships were. Like, this, is, this was just like this, the hub of Jewish life in this particular time. They don't want to be thrown out, and you're kind of like, okay, I get it, I get it. You know, you're like... We all know that pressure of like wanting to follow Jesus but not lose our family and friends too. And so if I put the period there, I'm kind of like, all right, well, maybe they're like secret Christians or something. You know, like maybe they'll grow into it one day. Uh, maybe they're true believers. They're just struggling in their faith to start off with. But I can't put a period there because the text didn't put a period there. So let's just keep reading and see how we feel. Verse 43, now it's going to explain why they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How are you feeling now? Now, I'm not convinced of anything, but let me just tell you, I'm not as confident as I was when I read the first few lines of the verse. I'm not as confident. You say, well, what's the answer? Well, when I read the people that are smarter than me on this, who study it, you know what? This is, you'll like this. They're split. Some people think this is real belief and just immature. Some people think, oh man, uh, I think John's making a statement here that uh, there is such a thing as fake belief. Now, how do, how do you answer this? Well, you've got you to read the, read the book. I'm not talking about reading the whole Bible. You, you need to do that too. I'm not reading John. What has John said up to this point about belief? Don't just give me two more minutes mentally. Two more minutes mentally. And then it'll be downhill, I promise. What does John say about belief? Well, the first thing he says about belief that's interesting to us in this account is John 2, 23 to 25 where we're introduced to a group of people who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But verse 24 says, But on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Now, I, I know there's a lot of words, and I know it's been a long time since we looked at John 2. Here's how it goes down. It says, They believed in him because of his works, and you know what it says in return? He did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. 
John 2 opened up a category for us that we did not expect, and that is a group of people supposedly believing in Jesus that Jesus does not entrust himself to. You're like, Ooh, well, what group is that? He comments again in John 5, 41 to 44 on this belief. Notice, or listen. He's, he's talking to the Pharisees who will not believe in him, and he says, I do not receive glory from people. Does that sound familiar, glory? I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Notice that. He's saying, why can't you believe? Well, it seems that you're more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks. I'm not making this up. This is John 5. We're in John 12. If we're confused about are these people really believers or not, the only way I know how to answer that question is to go back and see what John means. And here's what I know so far. He has a category for people who supposedly believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. And here's what I also know. Some people want to believe in him, but cannot believe in him because they're more concerned about what everybody else thinks rather than what God thinks. And so now I read John 12, and I wonder, like, hey, am I, can I pick up what he's laying down? Like, am I getting it? And I can't say for sure that these people aren't believers, because it says they believe. But let me tell you, there is a huge question mark in my mind. Thus I say, not just that they will not believe, or they could not believe, but they might not believe. It would seem that there is reasonable opportunity for doubt in light of the fact that they are more obsessed with what everybody else thinks than what God thinks. And I would say that about anyone, anyone, because the text does, who says, I believe in Jesus, but you are a slave to the opinions and estimations of others. You know, it was in this this very chapter where Jesus had just earlier said, hey, I'm going to glorify myself by dying like a seed in the ground. And by the way, anybody who's going to follow me is going to die like a seed in the ground as well. And they're going to be my servant forever. Like if there's not some kind of cross-carrying, if there's not some kind of death to self, if you're still obsessed with what everybody around you thinks, it just kind of makes me wonder, is this real belief or not? This is a helpful category. There's bogus belief and there's bona fide belief. Confession of Christ is the clarifier of belief. I'll say it that way. Confession of Christ is the clarifier of belief. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with the mouth your Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice how he puts believing in your heart the Lord Jesus and confessing Him with your mouth as parallel statements saying that when those two things are true of somebody, they're truly saved. It's a promise. Your intellectual assent to Jesus, but functional beholdenness to the glory of others should serve as a scary question mark on the certainty of your faith. If, I'm going to be real. If you're in here today and you're saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't know that I'm ready to like publicly identify with it. I don't want to get baptized because, I mean, that's, that's kind of official, you know? That makes it kind of, makes it really public, and I don't know if I'm ready for that step. Or, I, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. No, I really do. I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but this whole thing about like being a communing part of a church and like getting together with other people. That seems a little official. It seems a little out there. I don't know that we're ready to, to go that far with things. I, I kinda, I've got my own community. I don't know that I need this Christian community thing as well. That's exactly what they were saying. They were saying, I believe in Jesus, but I want to hold on to the synagogue. And am I saying those people are going to hell? I don't know. But isn't that disturbing enough that you don't know? That's why I say confession is a clarifier of belief. For some of you, the best thing that you could possibly do for your budding faith in Jesus is just to go ahead and publicly identify with Him and get it over with. And time will tell. (laughs) My old, my friend, my, my mentor, 
one of the best evangelists I know, personal evangelist. His response when somebody says they believe in Jesus, and I've said this to you before, but we should remember it. Hallelujah, and we'll see. You believe in Jesus? Woo-hoo! We'll see. Let me see if you confess him. Initially, through baptism, and then ongoingly in the company of his church. There's this fable, this story, that um, well represents the anatomy of unbelief that we've looked at here. In the old story, again, it's made up. It's one of those things that preachers tell, but it's good. I'll, I'll share it. You've got a meeting. It's called by Satan, and it's basically a strategy session for subverting those who were close to salvation. So Satan asked the opening question, what shall we do to keep them from turning to the light, from trusting in Jesus? And so one of the demons speaks up and says, oh, I've got a great idea. Let's just lie. Um, We could tell them that there's no life after death, and we'll tell them that there's no hereafter. And some of the guys were thinking, like the other demons were like, yeah, that's a great plan. And Satan mused over it a while, and he answered, no, that's not going to work. Even atheists will talk of life after death, and even unbelievers pray before surgery. That's not going to work. So they thought a little longer, and another one of the demons spoke up a little more sheepishly and said, okay, I think I have a solution. Let's say that there is no God, simply a cosmic force of sorts, and that there could never be any personal knowledge of God. And Satan replied again negatively to the dismayed crowd of demons, that's not going to work. Mankind has an innate belief in deity, and they will search until they either find him or some replacement of him. Other ideas were presented. None of them could actually get any traction. And finally, as they were about to just totally give up on this whole enterprise, one demon leaped up and said, I have it, this is going to work. And so the demons crowded around him to hear his plan. And he said, we will go and tell them that God is real and the Bible is a worthy book. Now, a gasp came from the other demons at this point. That's anyone would suggest such a thing. And he said, no, 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 hear me out. And we'll tell them that Jesus is God's Son and He can free humankind from sin. And the other demons at this point are like, this guy has lost his mind. They thought that he had gone mad until, with a smile, that demon added, and then tell them that this is not the best time to choose Christ. Help them make excuses and tell them there's no hurry. And the demons danced in delight. thinking that their plan would be perfect. Why? Because the more times you say no to Christ, the less likely you'll be to say yes. The unbelief does not need to last forever, friends. Do you get that? It does not need to last forever. It just needs to last today. You understand that you are playing into the hands of the enemy when you say, not today. Satan doesn't give a rip if you believe tomorrow, because tomorrow never comes. It is today. And so it seems the fictional plan has worked for so many. This plan has worked for many that we love, many who may even be here today. There are some here now who will not believe. You're setting it up for another no again. You just I don't want it. I don't want it. There are some, sadly, and it may be true, that you cannot believe. You don't even care what I'm saying right now. And there are some in here who might not believe, though you think you have. Intellectual ascent to Jesus, check. 
But following that up with a public confession of him, walking with him in the company of his church, just hangs a big question mark over things. And I'm sorry, friends, I really am. And and there's a part of me that's sorry to share such sad news for Christmas. But there's another part of me that's just frankly delighted to be a slave to whatever the next passage is. I'm not targeting anybody. I don't have an agenda beyond the fact that I finished at John 12.36 a few weeks ago, and now it's John 12.37. You just happen to be here today, but God knew that. And you say, oh, I don't get it. You know, like, why so negative? Friends, let's be real. I'm done. Don't worry, I'm done. But let me just explain why this sounds so negative and what you can do about it. God only tells you the negative so that you can respond with the positive. I don't see any of you getting angry at your doctors for giving you an honest diagnosis about a cancer. All right, right, doc, tell me like it is. And tell me what to do about it. Friend, this text has told you like it is. And when we read through these passages, we know exactly what we need to do about it. It's really simple. I'm going to sum it up in four words. And you're going to like this because you can remember it. It's A, B, C, and D. Step one, admit. Admit that you actually need a Savior, a crucified Savior, one who would satisfy God's wrath through His death on the cross, one who would conquer death on your behalf by rising again from the dead. You need that. Just admit it. Just own it. Everybody knows it. Just admit it. Two, believe. Once you recognize you've got a problem, now you just need to trust in this one. I, I didn't say behave. That's not what we're calling you to do next. It's not behave, it's believe. It really is believe. Just say, I can't do this on my own. I am totally dependent on him and what he's done. I am done trusting in myself. I am done counting on everybody around me. I will only count in the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Believe. Three, confess. If you say you believe, hallelujah, we'll see. How do we see it? You confess that. You just come out. In the open and say, through baptism in particular, I'm dead to self, I'm alive in Christ, I'm identified with His body. And then you commune with Him. And them, by the way. (laughs) Him and them. You walk with Him in the company of His church. And then 4D. Declare. Tell other people the same thing. Call them to believe in Him as well. That's really what a church is at the end of the day. It's a group of baptized believers who have partnered themselves together for the accomplishing of the Great Commission. We're doing this together. And so it's bad news indeed, but it's for a good end. And so we conclude by having me pray. I want to pray for those of you who have yet to believe. And then we who have believed will rejoice in His grace in a final song. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, my heart is so heavy. It is so heavy. For those who still do not believe. And for those who might not believe. It's not clear in the way that they have identified with you publicly. Oh God, open eyes, unstop ears, give spiritual life, Lord, rescue sinners today, reconcile them to Savior. There's no better way to enter the Christmas season than, than truly enjoying the Christ of Christmas. I pray uh, for, for spiritual life today among those who have yet to believe. Or draw them in. And if they have questions or concerns, or just give them that modicum of courage needed to talk to, to other believers around them to get more clarity. But God, may today be the day of salvation for some who are even sitting here right now. 
And for those of us who have already responded, for those of us who have enjoyed the benefits of this Christ, Lord, give us the grace to enjoy that, to recognize that it is not of us, it is all His gift, and may we passionately declare that to others. Especially this time of year. So even now, as we testify to the enjoyment that we found in Jesus, we trust that our praise would be enabled, that our proclamation would be powerful, and that many would come to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.